Thank you for downloading this episode. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that our interviews with leaders of TTOs and University Venture Funds are now on their own feed, with new episodes every Friday. Interviews with people like Matt Perkins from Oxford University Innovation, Sarah Valin from Chalmers Ventures, or Kirsten Leuter from Osage University Partners. Just search for Talking Tech Transfer in your podcast app or go to globaluniversityventuring.com to subscribe. Welcome to the Global Venturing Review Leadership Series, where we talk to thought leaders from the corporate and university venturing worlds to find out more about how they are changing the world. In today's episode, I talk to Peter Devine, Chief Executive of Uniseed. Well, Peter Devine, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to be here. To start with, uh, maybe you can give us a bit of an overview of what Uniseed is, what it does. Yeah, Uniseed has uh, been around, uh, we're in our 20th year now, although we've morphed over the years, but we're we're basically a a partnership of five of the top research organisations in Australia, the universities of Queensland, Sydney, New South Wales, Melbourne and the CSIRO. And um, probably the unusual thing about us is that the the research organisations themselves are the limited partners in the fund. and. we have three funds now. We have a, a commercialization fund, which I guess is a proof of concept fund, or we start there, but, but invests all the way through. We do have a follow on fund, so we can double down on those companies that are going really well in the later rounds. And we've also now have a co investment fund, which, which is actually private money. And, um, you know, so that comes alongside us every time we invest. So we, we have the capacity to invest up to five million dollars at least five million over the life of a deal now which is great you know, and gives us a little bit bit more money to play with and our mandate is uh, really to only invest in partner partner uh, i was going to say partner ip but in fact it's it's any startups that have have some benefit back to the partner and that then captures student ip as well as potentially companies that are spending a lot of money in research funding at our partners as well. So, so to help facilitate that IP, obviously under the co- commercial discipline of a fund. Awesome. You said almost, well, you are in your 20th year now, uh, which makes Uniseed one of the oldest venture funds focused on, on, on universities, certainly much, much longer ago than MIT or even Oxford um, dreamt up theirs. You said you've morphed a little bit over that time, but what have been the kind of the long-term lessons or the long-term impact you've seen? Yeah, look, I, I think if I go back to the fund itself, initially it was for the first five years was a proof of concept fund and it, it really provided a little bit of money to a lot of technologies, the idea being to bridge that gap, uh, you know, that we all see that funding gap and, and then get the, the technologies out there where someone else can pick them up. And I think they learned in some ways the hard way that, you know, in doing that, it's not really a way to make money. Approver concept funds are a very difficult way to, to make money. And um, so when I got involved uh, in about 2006, we, we changed that model and really coined that term commercialization fund, which, which I don't think anyone else had used at the time. But the idea being we still did, we, we did those early investments, but we followed all the way through to the end. We stayed engaged with the company. We tried to keep a board seat, try to retain influence, 
so that we, you know, if you like, protected our early investment. And the other thing was, of course, we did a lot more thorough due diligence. So we did less investments with the new fund, doing more due diligence, but that was a little more successful in that in the end, um, we had a number of exits out of the, that second fund from 2006 to 15, but the higher profile ones were Fibrotech, uh, which was sold to Shire and Spinifex was sold to Novartis. And we had Hatchtech, which is a headlight treatment that just got FDA approval last month. So on the back of that, we've been able to raise money uh, now from other unis and broaden the, the membership of the fund, but also now bring in private money because a lot of particularly family offices and, and high net worth sophisticated investors are looking for someone to follow and, and so someone that's done it before with some success. Yeah, I guess what we've learned is just like anything, <laughs> practice makes perfect. We've, we've, made, we've made mistakes and we've, we've learned from them and, and I, I think now where we're, we're sort of at, and this might sound almost oversimplified, but, you know, in terms of biotech, which is about a third of our, and drug development, which is about a third of our investments, you know, we, we've really learned you need to have a, a something that looks a bit like a lead drug. We, we In the old early days, we funded drug chemistry programs, which are really, a, you know, wow. how long's a piece of string sort of, you know, there was a target, but it was like, well, maybe we can make a molecule. So now... We want to see a molecule. We want to see animal data in a relevant model. And that's the sort of basic. If you've got a bit more than that, it's great. With, uh, I think, you know, with the, the other technologies, it's really about we've learned to do a lot more work on customer engagement and make, and, you know, talking to not only the acquirers, but customers and really making sure we understand the market. Because most of these things that have failed haven't failed for technical reasons. And I guess if they do, we can accept that. But it's often that market failure. You know, you actually do develop a product and it just doesn't, um, you know, get to the market or penetrate enough. So, so that's yeah. probably what we've learned over the years. And there's probably a lot of other little learnings along the way as well. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, you've mentioned Ferrotech, Spinifex, um, Hatchtech as well. You wrote a guest comment about that um, 20 year journey to FDA approval, which is quite stunning. Recommend to people that they uh, go on Gov and check that out. Perhaps in more general, terms what what is the impression of what is the impression of, of researchers in australia of commercialization has that changed over the years are they keen to launch spin outs startups i think yes the the short answer is yes and uh, look i think in australia um you know if we, we had the global financial crisis and and in 2008 and, and then there was a real dearth of money and um and also we had universities with a very different view at that time of, of uh, IP and, and particularly student IP. They didn't see any real value in it. And so after, the, after our exits and on the back of a couple of other big deals like Atlassian, which, you know, was a big success as well, what happened was the whole mood, you could almost feel the whole mood in Australia change and commercialisation wasn't a dirty word anymore and we we had governments put a lot more money into commercialization and set up programs but we also had universities pretty well every university set up an incubator and or an accelerator and and they they i think strategically recognized the value of student ip from a reputational and branding point of view you know to attract good students 
you know, but also, you know, give them some kudos and reputation if a student spun something out and was successful. And traditionally they didn't because they didn't own the IP. So I think there was a real shift in, in mindset. And, and the other thing that I think happened is after some of those successes, a lot of people started looking at universities in Australia, you know, they kind of went, wow, you, you can make money out of universities. <laughs> and, um, I, and I think, you know, so we had a lot of, uh, as I said, high net worths and family offices, but also funds like, you know, we had the, the IP group in the UK have set up now in Australia in a similar yeah. space to us. And, and there's other funds as well. So, and so the researchers themselves, I think, you know, one of our roles we see is to try to, uh, be change agents in the university. So I can't say they all embrace it, but more of them are embracing it. And I think the reason for that is that we now have role models that have been successful, academics that have spun things out. And, and, and that's great to put them up in front of people. And we, we, we have seminars, but we always bring our academics in to talk, not us, because they'll listen to an academic and they can relate to them. So. And, and the other thing is, you know, we're quite flexible in the way we do it in that we don't, we're not prescriptive in saying you must leave the university, you must join the startup. We find a way to keep the academics engaged, but some of them, if they want to stay in the uni, they can stay there and we'll fund research there. Others want to leave and they can become a CTO. So, so I think that's important for us, but there's definitely been a real, a real change. I mean, now, ironically, um, you know, that focus on students is interesting because as a postscript in COVID, a lot of the Australian unis and I think the the universities overseas have lost a lot of international yeah. student revenue. So so they've almost become over-reliant on that and we're sort of dealing with that a bit now in, in you know, just being more aware of that and managing that cash flow, helping for them, you know, trying to, to, to manage that sort of cash flow or drawdowns, you know. Yeah, I know certainly in um, in the UK as well, we have a lot of a large Chinese student population, especially here in, in Cardiff where I am, and I can't really see them coming. They, they're talking about the few universities here in the city are talking to charter some planes and fly students in, but I don't, I don't know how realistic that proposition uh, might be to students. I wouldn't want to travel if I was a student now. No, well, the universities I'm involved with are all really saying it's a three-year process for them. They don't expect, they expect holes in their budgets, you know, not only this year, but in 21 and 22 as well. And a number of them are laying off staff. You know, Melbourne Uni just laid off 450 staff. Uh, and there'll be more. There will be more from other unis. So, uh, you know, I think the impact will be felt for a long time because, as you say, um, students aren't, aren't going to start coming back until this current crisis is really resolved. So I think it's it's interesting, but it'd be interesting to see how they rebound off that. I think it'll make them better if you you know they'll make them a bit leaner and and a bit smarter in how they operate. Australia, uh, my overstepping here, but Australia is not traditionally seen as a hotspot for innovation. People tend to think of, of Silicon Valley, maybe the UK, not even the rest of Europe, which is kind of unfair, I think, because you've given us everything from from Wi-Fi to reusable contact lenses. And obviously, Australia used to be quite focused on mining, which might be part of the, the reason of that view. Has that view changed over the years? Have you, have you seen overseas investors becoming more interested? I, I know you mentioned IP groups setting up in Australia. Yeah, look, we have. I mean, it's interesting. Look, no, Australia's research is on par with all other groups in the world. So, 
you'd expect the outcome, the output to be as good. I mean, uh, the things that we have suffered from, and we recognise it now that our translation hasn't been great. We're we're the first now to say it, and it's one of the big criticisms, and it's something that the government and and a lot of the universities are now focused on a lot more on translation because we rank very low in in translating um, outputs of research in a lot of the rankings like the OECD rankings. But I think we suffer from... The, you know, the, that tyranny of distance, although Australians are traditionally, you know, happy to jump on planes and be travelling a lot. But, but by that also, I mean, we were very, we've got a very small population base, you know, say 30 million people. But we don't have, the difference is that if you're in a U, US or a UK, we don't have the big head offices of the, you know, acquirers sitting right next to us. You know, we don't have big pharmaceutical companies. They're really sales offices of those companies and the same for for all the other companies in the tech space so i think that's been a little bit part of the problem but i I think people are now realizing there's a lot of value in australia and and a lot of opportunity from overseas and so first of all you know valuations are probably a lot better because the australian dollar relative to the the pound or the us dollar is you know you get more for your money when you invest here and the technology is the same. And, and we tend to be able to do things, you know, we've learned over the years to be, do things, you know, um, I, I say frugally, but I don't mean that with any sacrifice to what we're doing. And we also have attractive programs where, for example, in Australia, you know, you get back 41% of every dollar you spend on R&D. So you're leveraging your money for a start. So that's a very attractive program. And so... So I, I think you're right. There's a lot of people now looking to Australia. We, we seem to be, be contacted more often by investors from overseas who are looking at opportunities that we have. You know, the, a lot of them, though, uh, you know, the old story is that a lot of VCs like to invest in their own backyard. You know, they don't. But we are certainly seeing a lot of um, interest from overseas. And, and you know, we, we flipped uh, a number of companies to the US and, We've invested in one in the UK in Cambridge called Exonate now, which has some intellectual property from one of our unis. And so, so you know, we're, we're, that's our message. You know, if people invest with us, we're happy to, at a certain point, flip it up. And it makes more sense to do that anyway because it's closer to the action, so to speak, closer to the market, closer to the acquirers. So the short answer is, yeah, I think our scorecard's pretty bad, but I think we're aware of it now anyway, at least, you know, trying to rectify it. Yeah, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I mean, re- recognizing your problems is usually the first step to fixing them. So uh, it's quite interesting to hear you admit that you, that you have that um, that challenge. Have startups or companies in general have they traditionally focused on the domestic market then, or or have they looked overseas? No, we've always been. I think Australians have always been very focused overseas because I think one thing we did realize is that we're one percent of the world market of, of most markets. You know, so. The only time we would focus domestically is perhaps to do a test pilot marketing of a product to to show that that you know we we've got to work out the marketing message to work out the branding to generate customers and revenue and really demonstrate in an Australian context that we can do it with a view then that it can be rolled out in the US or the UK but but traditionally. You know, just because uh, most of the market size is there and the acquirers are there, that's where we concentrate. But we do have examples such as Perky, which is a probiotic drink, which we're 
focused on Australia. And we've got Cardihab, which is a, a cardiac rehabilitation technology, a, an e-health company that's focused on Australia. But the view is, at, at, you know, to establish cred through doing that and then roll it out overseas. Do you, I like to ask people this question, and, and the answer is usually all of them. Have there been any technologies that you've seen over the years where you, maybe in a personal capacity, not as, not as the CEO, thought, this is really cool? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard you ask other people that, mate. And I, <laughs> <laughs> so I, was I like seeing people a bit flustered. <laughs> yeah. And it, look, it's a, it's a tough one. They all, I mean, sometimes people ask me, you know, from, from the unis, or they'll say, what, what are the companies that are going to be the successful ones? that we've invested in, you know, and I say, well, they all can be, they all can be successful or we wouldn't be investing in them. You know, we should be winding them up. So, um, but look at the moment that there's a lot of really interest, you know, I just think in our portfolio, we've got some really interesting companies. And I mean, one in the biotech space that really excites me is we, we invested in a company that had a a drug for addiction and, um, and that company's, you know, from when we started, what we thought it was and where it is now, it's it's really sort of blossomed. Um, you know, that company, as an example, it's, it's it, we thought we had one class of drugs. We've now got two drugs with two different novel targets. We, we got 4.6 million US from the National Institute of Drug Abuse in America to support the company. And and also we've shown that, you know, that these drugs are useful in, a, in non-sedating aggression. So you imagine... People in nursing homes get frustrated with Alzheimer's and they get aggressive, but so they usually dope yeah. them up with something and put them to sleep. So, so that one to me, and the reason I'm excited about it is when we did that, a lot of people, including pharma people, said, "Ah, oh, you know, addiction—it's just too hard." And but, but we did that, and and the market's kind of caught up with us because the opioid crisis has gone crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, and that that money from the US from NIH validates that. So. So that kind of excites me because I believe that, and, and most of our biotechs are the same, but I really see that could have a massive impact, you know, socially on the world. Yeah. And, and so that excites me. Look, in, in the non-biased space, we've got all sorts of, you know, really uh, exciting technologies. We've just approved an investment in a carbon capture technology, which we think is really exciting uh, because it, it can do it, you know, very cost-effectively. Can't say too much about that yet. We're in the legal legals of that. You know, we we have some really really cool tech in terms of agricultural robotics in agriculture. Um, you know, looking at uh, you know uh, Wi-Fi chips. We've got a company Morse Micro with Wi-Fi chip de- just demonstrated uh, Wi-Fi across Sydney Harbour, which is you know one or two kilometres. So we've got some really wow. exciting stuff and. Um, um, yeah, so I think, you know, we're, we're quite excited about the next five years. Um, COVID's kind of, uh, you know, kicked us a little bit, but I, I think we'll, you know, we should have some really exciting things happening then, you know. So it's very hard and I'm going to sit in the fence and say, I'll give you some examples, but I can't really pick one, you know, because as we know, I could pick one. One of those ones I just mentioned could fall over. You know, that's the nature yeah. of what we do. Yeah. No, that's interesting now. I, I also usually ask people what got them to join an organization. And if you want to comment on that, do. But you've been around for 17, just over 17 years now. So, so maybe the question should be, what made you stick around? Yeah, no, look, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I can answer both questions. I think there's a lot of luck in this. Um, for me, it's sort of being in the right place at the right time. 
you know, I didn't intentionally say I want to be a venture capitalist. I, I was, I'd worked for four Australian biotech companies and, and I was started off in research, but ended up in the business development side of things. And, um, and so I, I happened to, to leave one of those and was working as a consultant, but Uniseed were just looking for someone because remembering it was a proof of concept fund and they were looking for someone to come along and have a look at that, but look at the biotech particularly the biotech portfolio. And so, so I just happened to be there, initially joined as a consultant, you know, it wasn't an employed position and then ended up being turned into an employed position. But, but why I've stuck around, it's interesting you go through this sort of journey, you, you know, we, we, we started the, the new, that's the last fund. And so by inference with that, you want to stick around for the 10-year cycle and, yeah. and you, you want to show, you know, you, you do it and you think, well, you come up with this new model and you think, well, I, I believe in this, so you want to show it works. So then it, you show it works and then you say, well, I'd like to now raise another, you know, you want to raise another one, I want to keep it going. So, so you know, we're about five years into our that next, the, the, the most recent fund, but then there's other things that get you interest like organising a follow-on fund or a co-investment fund or developing, you know, 10 years ago if I knocked on the door of, some of these top 100 wealthiest people in Australia, they wouldn't have opened the door and now they're, they're talking to me. So that's, you know, a lot of interest. And, and also you've just got to love, I love technology. I love meeting the scientists. They're really smart people. And, and you know, and, you know, when you get a good relationship. So it has kept me interested because it's not a job that's going and doing the same thing every day and it, it gives you different challenges every day. But, look, I don't know if I'll be, <laughs> after this 10-year cycle, I don't know if I'll be going again. But. Oh, well, I could say I won't be, I'm sure, but but I've really, you know, but it was more just to really cement, and uh, you know, b- because in that second fund, it was really interesting. We went through the the GFC, and it was a real struggle. And so to get to the end of that and um, have success was a great thing. And then to raise that next fund, it was a logical thing to do. Perhaps as a slight follow on to that, what's next for Uniseed? What 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 are the plans for the next few years? Yeah, look, I think at, at this stage, um, you know, we don't, we don't, unlike a lot of uh, VCs, you know, we don't have aspirations to take over the world, I don't think, uh, like some do. Because, and I think the difference is that we're a fund that's run, we say it's run by, and I use the word universities to include CSIRO as well, but it's, it's run by universities for the benefit of the universities. You know, so we're not private money. We did have some superannuation fund money in the last fund and we found that a bit problematic because there's different needs of different shareholders. So, you know, we we uh, we have uh, explored other universities joining us. So, you know, growing the fund over time, and I think a logical time to do that would be, you know, when the next fund is is being set up. I think there's opportunities for us to build more relationships with private capital, and so the way we've done it is to have a co-investment fund. Which sits alongside us, which works well, and and they and we do that in in a very particular way. In that, the university fund pays the management fees, but we don't charge fees to the co-investment fund um, intentionally. We you know we get benefit from having a greater pool of capital, but if they're successful on a deal by deal basis, then they pay us a percentage. So it's quite a good model for us. You know, we're not in it for the fees, which a lot of these managers are. You know, but if we're successful, we'll actually they'll they'll end up probably paying more than what the normal fees would be, 
Um, you know, so and they only pay if they make money, and people don't mind giving you money if they make money. So, so I think they're the things we'd sort of explore. You know, as I said, we don't have this desire to go and, you know, go and join universities in Asia or, or, or manage a whole lot of universities. And, and that's kind of, you know, as I said, we've got five of the top research organisations which make up 50% of all the commercial output in Australia in terms of new patents and startups. So, you know, it's a pretty good model. Like with a low touch, we get all, half of what's coming out. But I do think there's an opportunity to, to broaden that. But our model's a bit different in that getting universities to pay, some, some just have an aversion to, to putting money up. There. But I think as time goes on, they see more the strategic benefit of it because it's not just about money for them. It's about it's all the other activity. It's about upskilling and the, the club and the benchmarking of the tech transfer offices against each other. And it, it's, it's, it's about, you know, ultimately their reputation and, you know, impact and engagement and all those buzzwords that we hear now, it's all part of that, part of that commercialization, you know, um, sort of structure and system that they all have. So the ones that get it and see commercialization strategically, they're our members, you know, whereas the other, a lot of the others, it's a cost center to them. And they're looking for a revenue generation, which I think is the wrong way to look at it. You'll get your revenue if you, in the long run if you do it, but it shouldn't be your driver. You know? Yeah. If there is anything else that we haven't covered that you, uh, that you would like to talk about? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have anything in particular, but I guess I'd just say that, you know, one of the things going forward now, the challenges with COVID, it's going to be interesting for us. Look, we, we, our portfolio has done very well and our you know, we still have our money to invest. So, and we found that people are still investing, a lot of those private people. But we had some impact on the portfolio by, you know, clinical trials being postponed, um, you know, things being delayed, components that were made in China we couldn't get to, to make products. You know, so we've had all the portfolio has been impacted, but they've all got through it. I, I think one of the challenges I can see is we've got a number of companies that are getting to a point where we want to look at, you know, doing some sort of commercial transaction, you know, ultimately selling the company. And I think business development is going to be tough in this current environment because you can do stuff on, on Zoom, but it, uh, uh, you can't form new relationships as easily on Zoom. The ones we've got are, are easy to maintain. And often it's about getting over there and meeting people. And, and we had one company uh, in the, you know, that, that did a, collaborative research deal with a, a company which was worth you know multi-million dollars but they sent 26 people to do due diligence at the company before they committed the wow. money so i don't know how that's going to happen now you know that's the sort of thing that that i think is probably concerns me a little bit now how do how do we get those deals how do we, you know can we still do business development as effectively yeah, and that's that's probably the challenge for us going forward because obviously we're into the second half of our fund and it's the time we're really looking at doing some exits and, you know, and, uh, and, and getting into the black, so to speak. That's probably the only thing on my mind, main thing on my mind, <laughs> off the top of my mind at the moment that's worrying me, you know. No, that makes sense. That's, yeah, that, that seems very reasonable and perfectly understandable. But, um, I mean, from, from everything else you've said, you uh, you seem to be in a fairly good position, which which is good to hear. And I'm sure the Uniseed has, has, has made it through the global financial crisis. So I'm sure it'll make it through, uh, through this one as well. Yeah, I think this will be, this will be just as tough, if not tougher, but um, because the university suffered in the, much the same way after the GFC. 
people stopped coming from overseas because they just couldn't afford it. But I, I do think that this will be a deeper and sort of longer impact on them. But fortunately, as I said, our universities are that you know strategically they see that they don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and in some ways the ones that will survive, and the same with companies, you know the ones that you know stay committed and 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 uh, keep keep investing in commercialization through this time will be the ones that come out at the end um, in a much better position i think so they realize that which is great i like to finish on uh, on, a, on, a, on a positive note i haven't been that dour have i no 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 <laughs> oh, peter thank you very much for uh, for joining us today no worries terry it's uh, great been great talking to you thanks a lot bye-bye thank you bye Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.